Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is brought to you by this. Episode 92 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. This podcast is all about talking about music-centric films. On the other end of a Skype connection, I have my partner and great friend, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hello. Now, we don't have Tim this month because we did an interview and we just couldn't get the times aligned, but he'll be back for next month. We'll talk about that at the end of the show, but we have a great one for you this month. We spoke to the director of a wonderful new documentary called Fire Music, the story of free jazz. The director's name is Tom Sergal. And this was really quite an eye opener. I mean, I've been a longtime fan of jazz and I know that Bernie, you have too, but I didn't really know much about the history of free jazz. And uh, Tom had a lot of really wonderful things and interesting things to say about the history, as does the film. So what we're going to do is we're going to go play you the trailer, and then Bernie and I will be back to talk to Tom Sergal. We'll be back at the end of the show to talk with you about what's happening in episode 93. Most people are used to only having one melody going at, at a time and cannot cope with polyrhythms and polytonality. Just imagine what it would be like to be in New York in 1959 in the wake of the death of Charlie Parker, who's still alive then in everybody's head. Now, all of that's really wonderful, but what about this? The point is you have to understand this music in terms of the traditional jazz that you've heard before. 
in my head, I was doing whatever I felt like doing whenever I felt like doing it. I had no place to live when I arrived in the city, and so I stayed overnight in Grand Central Station on a bench. Everything was fine. Whatever I had to eat, whatever I heard was perfect. There was immediacy in the air, man. It was like a short fuse and a long explosion. I was into now, doing it now. Whatever it was, I had to do it now. The thing that has made jazz such an enthralling experience for over 100 years worldwide is that it has never sat still. My story is not part of history because history repeats itself. But my story is endless. It never repeats itself. Why should it? You have any questions? Ask me. Questions? Yeah. I got, I got plenty of answers, man. Come on. Welcome back to episode 92 of the See Here podcast. And Bernie and I are really hugely excited. We have on the other end of a Zoom connection, we are speaking to the director, Tom Sergal. He's the director of a wonderful new documentary called Fire Music, the Story of Free Jazz. Welcome to See Here, Tom. Oh, welcome. No, uh, welcome to uh, my life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for admitting us into your life. Well, you may regret it by the end of the dial. I'm sure we won't. Tom has just drank the largest cup of coffee that either of us has ever seen, so it should be interesting. I think he'll be speeding this up by the end of it. Congratulations, Tom, on the release of uh, oh, great. the Thanks documentary. A lot. Before we launch into talking about fine music, I wanted to ask you in something in relation to yourself as a drummer. So uh -oh. I only just sort of discovered through all of this and seeing little YouTube clips that you are drumming with, you know, a variety of people, first and more. I discovered that you had played with the Nels Klein Trio. Oh, no, not, not, not the Nels Klein Trio. Nels has done guest spots with uh, my band Whiteout with Lynn Culbertson, who's you just met, who's the composer on the film. Fifteen years we've collaborated together. Oh, okay. Well, that possibly negates my first question because I was at a Bill Frisell concert here in Melbourne in 2009, uh -huh. and Nels Klein and his trio opened yeah. up the show playing music that is very much the focus of your documentary, very free jazz and very un-Bill Frisell-like. And I was wanting to ask, have I seen you before? Were you here in Melbourne? No, no, only in my dreams. You know, so. <laughs> 
So what is your connection with Nels? When did you first meet him? Nels is an Angelino and um, my parents, my mother is still in Los Angeles. So I spent a lot of time there. And actually he used to do a Monday night series at this place called the Alligator Lounge in uh, Hollywood. Yeah, I used to do a lot of, well, I still do, but he lives in the UK now. So we don't do it as much frequency. I, I do a lot of duo performances with Thurston Moore. So he put on a night of the two of us and that's when we first got together. And it was nice because it was he would do every Monday night. So whenever I was in LA, I knew where to find him. And we had a long, long association, both musically and socially. And he's a great guy and a great musician. Are you playing the same sort of music that he normally would play with his trio? No, not at all. Not at all. You have to realize Nelson has a, a extensive background in avant-garde improvisation. He was playing with, uh, he was recording with Julius Hemphill, the St. Louis native, uh, back in the early 80s in conjunction with his brother Alex Klein, his twin brother is an excellent drummer as well. So Nels is very rooted in this music. And as you know, Nels plays a lot of different music as his main gig is his, his well, his main, I won't say his main gig, but his main way of attaining financial solvency is Wilco, which has nothing to do with what he would normally play with the Nels Klein singers or the Nels Klein trio or with his numerous other collaborations with a variety of people. And I saw Jeff Tweedy's name in the uh, credits yeah. of this song as well. He just gave me a lot of money, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know Jeff that well. I only met him once, but we have a lot of friends in common. Jim O'Rourke, who produced Wilco, is a very close friend of mine and collaborated a lot with me. In fact, he appears on three Whiteout albums, and that's how I guess I first met him. And Glenn Kochi is a huge... That's And Glenn was Jim's drummer in, originally, and he introduced Glenn to Jeff. Well, he's a good friend, and he's a huge devotee of this music. There's a lot of interconnections there, but Jeff was just uh, very generous uh, when I was doing my Kickstarter campaign, and he uh, contributed a sum that actually necessitated that we give him an executive producer credit. <laughs> <laughs> So Tom, I, I know you primarily as a musician, oh, and okay. I, I didn't realise that you had so you were the director of this film. I'd heard of this film a little while ago, so I was uh, I was sort of quite uh, surprised and oh, pleased really? to find you were the director. Do you have a background in filmmaking? Oh yeah, I I didn't actually start playing uh, music professionally until relatively late in life, whereas I've been toiling in the film industry off and on since I was 19 years old, and I'm substantially older than that now. So film is really been my uh, main life thrust. I didn't know that at all. I'm, I'm obviously very uh, underprepared here. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not like people are that acutely aware of my uh, biographical background. But actually, uh, it's a kind of funny story. Uh, Thurston Moore is actually entirely, he, he's one of my oldest friends. We've known each other for many decades. And he's the one who really pushed me into uh, performing music. He used to just come over to the house and I have my kit set up and I tool around. Should I tell you a little story about how I I, uh, first started performing music. Please. Please do. Rudolph Gray, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rudolph Gray. Sure, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rudolph Gray was doing a session with one of my heroes who who would ultimately become a good friend of mine who's actually featured in Fire Music, probably one of the uh, most arresting uh, interview subjects in the film, Rashid Ali. <laughs> So 
Thurston asked me to come into this little studio that we all used to work out of called Waterworks over on um, Chelsea, which at that time was very much uh, different. Now it's like, you know, the epicenter of yuppiedom and fashion, but at the time it was just, you know, strictly for rough trade, you know, it was all just transsexual uh, prostitutes and avant-garde musicians. But anyway, we were doing a session and we did an album's worth of material and Rashid had literally only brought in, I think, like a pair of drumsticks and he was under the impression that the session had ended and he put his sticks into his stick bag and uh, was saying the goodbyes and then he realized, Rudolph realized that Matador Records was just starting up at that juncture in time and Rudolph was asked to be on this compilation. He forgot all about it and he requested of, of Rashid that he stay some and do an additional uh, short piece for this compilation. Rashid just looked at Rudolph with this expression of utter incredulity. He's, he's like, hey man, I'm all packed up, you know, out of luck. And then much to my dismay, Thurston started volunteering my services. I stepped up to the plate and uh, I played on that selection on that compilation and then ended up playing with Rudolph for many years afterwards. So uh, that was my initiation into the uh, world of professional music. And I've just been uh, soaking up the major funds ever since. Yeah, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I love the opening moments of the film, mm. uh, Fire Music, the story of free jazz. I can't remember who it was, but there's someone who defines the path to free jazz. They say, like, a blues musician can play what he wants. Oh, yeah, by. that's Gary Gibbons, yeah. Oh, right, okay, uh, the, yeah. the jazz critic. Um, yeah. So a blues musician can play what he wants by himself, running up a 12-bar or 14-bar progression, but as more musicians get together, as it would be in any musical genre, there has to be some level of agreement, I think is the word that Gary uses, mm -hmm. um, how much is composed and how much can be improvised. The avant-garde musician's role is to remove that agreement and just play as they're inspired. All this is done with the visual background of the Sun Ra Orchestra Completely. Orchestra. Uh, 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 did I say uh, uh, orchestra? Yeah, uh, uh, well, maybe, me, maybe your accent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> was that how you would have defined free jazz to someone? If someone said to you, oh, I hear you're making this documentary, someone who knew nothing about it, how, what was your definition of free jazz all those years? I mean, I know that you've said in interviews that at the age of 13 years old, that's right. where you discovered it and fell under its spell. So how would you have defined it to someone? To be totally candid, I'm actually a little uncomfortable even with the term free jazz. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a bit reductionist, you know, there's a, a lot of hues in that rainbow. And so, you know, it's not one thing, but I go along with what Gary said. I capitulate to his greater knowledge of all things musical, you know. So I don't read or write, so he has a profounder uh, insight into, you know, the, the parameters. But I use the term free jazz in the title because it is an umbrella term, but at least everyone sort of knows what we're referencing. And actually, early on when we were approaching distributors, they were the one suggestion was that we add something to the title to sort of elucidate what, what it is the movie 
was about. So I'm not into definitions in general. It, it, I think I spent an hour and a half trying to elaborate on what free jazz is. You know, and, <laughs> I don't know if I can summarize. You know it when you hear it. Yeah. 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 You know, the joke that I've been telling in the course of all these interviews is, you know, it, it's free jazz because you don't get paid. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I guess. But as I don't know yet. When I first heard free jazz, well, what we're defining here, I'm a long time Pat Metheny fan since the early uh, 80s. Wow. Well, I'm just emailing back and forth with Jim O'Rourke about Pat Metheny. We're very psychically connected. I actually saw his first show in New York. I was working at a club at the oh. time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I just imparted this to Jim. I, I turned to the owner. It was the Bottom Line Club. It's actually a kind of famous cultural center here. It's where kind of Springsteen yep. made it. Yeah. And I turned to the owner, who who's usually pretty hip, but uh, I said, this guy's going to be huge. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so uh, I remember uh, years ago hearing an album, a trio album. The, P- the Pat Metheny group was still a thing, um, yeah. but he did a trio album with two alumni of the Ornette yeah, Coleman yeah, yeah. group, uh, Billy Higgins and Charlie Hayden. Called, the album was called Rejoicing. And most of the album was, you know, either in a, a bop vein, but there was one cut on it, and the name is failing me now, that was obviously way different to anything I'd heard from jazz. just about the time that I was starting to get into jazz. I mean, I knew some jazz fusion, but this is, I think, what the hell is this? And then I went to see the Pat Metheny group right. in 84, 85. They came here and he had, I can't remember what it was. It was like some guitar synclavia had this guitar with a cord that looked like yeah, a vacuum yeah. right. cleaner hose attached to it. And he was just doing this thing that was Ornette Coleman inspired. And the whole audience was looking at each other thinking, what the fuck have we just listened to? And then a few years later, he actually records with Ornette Coleman, does a song called Song X. So I just sort of thought it was something ironic there about being exposed to that sort of improvisational jazz from a man whose music is often very composed. I mean, he does do solos, but he's inspired by something that's freewheeling. But if you listen to his music, a lot of it is very structured, very composed. There's this way to play it. You know, that's why I was reluctant to give you a uh, concise definition of, of the genre. And because as I elaborated on in the film, it's a great variety of music. Obviously, there's the stuff that came out of New York, the sort of rough-hewn, polytonal, typical, all the contributors to the ESP label, you know, people uh-huh. like Sonny Simmons and Frank Lowe. And that stuff was entirely improvised and had a very, you know, aggressive vibe to it. Then you go to Chicago and St. Louis, and those guys were very much informed by uh, contemporary classical figures like Morton Feldman and John Cage, Braxton, particularly salient devotee of Karl Heinz Stockhausen. And their music, they could burn with the best of them. They had all those aspects of the New York thing. They're obviously informed by the music that was coming out of New York. But at the same time, they they sort of introduced a whole other dynamic to it. A lot of use of uh, small miscellaneous percussive instruments. Also a lot, a lot less dense, a lot of space. It was a lot sparser. Then you go over to the UK and people like John Stevens and Evan Parker and Paul Litton mm-hmm. were very guy, you know, they were doing 
probably the most radical sounds coming out of Europe. Sometimes they put on these almost inaudible performances. They were dubbed insect music, you know, for a while. Yeah, there. yeah. And, you know, and then I, I make the point in the, in where Barry Guy is elaborating on. He says, yeah, the German guys, they, they called it washing. They called our music washing machine music because it was so cyclical. It would go round and round. And then I think Tristan Hansinger makes the point in Germany, it was sort of more parallel to what, what was happening in New York. It had, a, it had a more, you know, aggro feel to it. Some music theorists have, have put forth the, the postulate that uh, maybe the, the Germans were, you know, lashing out at their Nazi fathers, you know. So I don't know if I can put a sociological spin on it. And then in Holland, it was very different, much more postmodern, much more eclectic. As Hans says, we would play the blues. You know, that was taboo in Germany and England. So th- those are prime examples. And also, uh, you know, in, in America, there was a very different scene in Los Angeles, too, with John Carter and Bobby Bradford. So I forgot the initial question. But, oh, I know. So I'm just saying free jazz is not one thing. And it, it's maybe the most mm. variegated uh, musical form that I can think of in a lot of ways. But, you know, what was dubbed punk rock back in the day. And I'm old enough to have been in on the, sure. uh, the, the bottom floor of that music. The stuff that was coming out of CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. Actually, none of those bands had much in common at all. There was a huge disparity between the Talking Heads, the Ramones, Blondie. So a lot of times when movements come together, it's more of a mentality. It's more of an attitude than, you know, precise, precise musical uh, similarities. It's interesting you uh, you bring up the punk thing, because uh, throughout the film, I was thinking very much there's a correlation between what happened with punk and free jazz. And uh, I think yeah. essentially both of them were underground music, weren't they? Yeah. It was music being made away from the mainstream and not necessarily a reaction to what had come before, because there's obviously an appreciation of what had come before. I think there lies a distinction. There's a lot of parallels, but punk was very much a break from the past. They would disparage, you know, the the dinosaurs of, of the previous of course, era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, hippies were none too celebrated within the punk ranks. Whereas free jazz, they were very much disciples of Charlie Parker and bebop, and they would never cast aspersions on the quality of uh, and the innovations. In fact. You know, as I, the point I've made is that jazz is always about innovation. It's always been a continuum. It's always about moving forward. And for them, they were just the next step. The similarity is the critics were pretty dismissive. The uh, <laughs> the venues wouldn't permit them to play. And they were really having to invent, like the punks, their own subculture. They had to find alternative outlets in which to perform this music. They had to work out of like churches and community centers and cafes and ultimately uh, their own homes. That's what birthed what they call the, well, it's in my movie, the loft jazz scene you know, in the late 60s. There was very much a, a, a DIY ethic to it, which, DIY, which again is exactly. fine. Yeah. thing of punk as well, isn't it? Right, right. There lies the similarity for sure. But, you know, uh, one of the interesting things that came out in the course of my interviews, the first first person I interviewed was John Chikine. You know, John had a, a huge impact on the American scene, but Ellen Chikine only lived here for five years and his working with the Contemporary Five and the New York Art Quartet and I was somewhat taken aback that he told me the entire time he lived in the States, he never played outside of New York City. <laughs>
it was a lot more local life than I had ever realized. And of course, the point I make is that uh, when you talk about the whole mid Midwestern continuum, those guys got no traction in the States whatsoever. And they had to go overseas to get any kind of attention. And then once they had attained a certain level of success, then they moved to New York. And a contiguous point is New York is and always was kind of the epicenter of this music. You know, that's why all the Chicago guys and all the St. Louis guys migrated to New York. Mm. And the point I make in the movie is that actually uh, very few, it was not an indigenous scene really. I mean, I think only Andrew Surreal, Cecil Taylor, and Barry Alcher are the only names that come to mind are, uh, were actually indigenous to New York. It really was a consequence of an exodus of people. And also New York uh, impacted the music, I think because they all the coming together of all these disparate types, they were pushing each other into more radical musical terrain. I mean, Sun Ra is a prime example. His music was much more conventional when he was in Chicago. And when he made the transition to becoming a New Yorker and sort of uh, took up residency at Slugs, he underwent uh, definitely a, an artistic metamorphosis. So um, I make the point in the movie, like not only were they influencing each other, but they were, you know, almost cohabitating. They all lived on the same street you know there was a, a real symbiosis and it, it's one of those bizarre situations where all this stuff was almost happening in little enclaves around the country and so on and then as you say yeah. they would come together and it, it was like a ball and it was all but this stuff was almost happening independently in all these various places and then yeah i still am somewhat incredulous as to why it took root in these very specific areas you know why st louis and chicago why why England, Germany, and England and Holland, you know, I mean, in relation to what I was talking about earlier, where New York gets the media focus, and New York has always been the jazz capital, you know, Ornette was part of this very vital scene. Uh, uh, Bobby Bradford, who's very featured in my movie, was also an integral part of, you know, uh, with John Carter and Horace Tapscott, and those guys never moved to New York, and obviously they never enjoyed the type of success that, that Ornette experienced. So, um, yeah, I forgot I'm making so many points simultaneously. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. We love that. You're making polyrhythmic points. It's just... Uh... <laughs> I don't know if you ever had the uh, pleasure of talking to Cecil Taylor, especially in the later years. His mode of conversation was kind of similar to his playing. It was kind of like, you know, you almost had to take notes in the course of the conversation. He seems like he was quite an intimidating fellow, Cecil Taylor. Oh, no, he was a sweet guy, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, he was very accessible. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I attended his uh, funeral, but, and it was a oh, very right. moving experience come back to your point a few minutes ago where you said yeah. that the free jazz musicians were finding it hard to get the work because you know, the critics didn't yeah. promote them, the venues wouldn't promote them. But what really came as a big surprise to me was there's a quote that you show on the screen from Miles Davis about yeah. Eric Dolphy, oh, uh, yeah. an album that you know, is like considered Pantheon nowadays, out to lunch. And considering Miles' own experimentation with the Hancock 
Carter, Williams, Shorter Quintet. And then when he went on to make albums like Bitches Brew, which I didn't get the first time I heard it, I, I would have thought he of all people would have said, I'm sticking with modal jazz for the moment, but go on, do what you're doing. And there was the other, what was it? It was a quote, I think you showed from Downbeat magazine that it oh, sounds yeah. like it's just- Poisoning oh, the mind. Nowadays we tend, like if we see reviews and we're not talking about like just anyone on the social media who can be nasty as they want, but in, in professional publications, they won't necessarily tear something in you. We're thinking like back about the early 60s where say the folk music movement were getting all irate. They were getting angry. They were furious at Dylan for going electric. Right, how, electric dare, right. how dare he? Calling him Judas and on the audience. And it just seems unusual to me that a magazine like Downbeat and a musician like Miles would be so publicly disparaging. So to the best of your knowledge, did Downbeat ever attract that later on or did Miles ever say? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I was a teenager, I read Downbeat. I mean, you know, they, they were, I read favorable reviews of the art ensemble and, you know, I wasn't really aware of that, but it's not like the same writers were always writing for it too. So, I, you know, I, I can't attest to that, that. That era of Downbeat is a little before my time, but in terms of Miles, you know, no, Miles, he went from, you know, really, he went from his modal thing to his electric thing. And when I read his autobiography, it's kind of funny you mentioned Bitches Brew, because I got that when I was 13 years old. It didn't make much sense to me. And I've always been pretty myopic. You know, I, I'm a native New Yorker, so we have a lot of attitude. I always had the blinders on. I was like, you know, really like anti-anything fusion. And, you know, it's actually my friends in the avant-garde scene in New York, Daniel Carter and Sabir Mateen, who kind of got me into listening to Electric Mouse. But what I... Uh, took note of in his autobiography. The reason I couldn't get into it initially is because he was really influenced by uh, Stockhausen at that stage. So that all those records really are very cyclical. You know, he liked that kind of structure. There's no beginning, middle, and end. So that was his way of, you know, experimenting. But he didn't, no, he never retracted. He was really down on avant-garde. I think he said something to the effect of like Ornette Coleman, he just plays loud, you know. (laughs) He was a very egotistical guy, wasn't he? I, I can't imagine he actually ever retracted much or apologized for things that he said. It's one of my favorite autobiographies. I like it because he didn't mince words. He said my, my, I mean it's been some time since I read it but he's really down on Charlie Parker as a human being. Uh, there was one scene that he uh, related where he was in the back of a cab and Charlie Parker. Miles had just moved from St. Louis. You know, he came from a, a rather middle-class background. His father was had a successful dental practice and he was pretty green. And um, he's sitting in the back of the cab and Bird is getting a, uh, he's eating fried chicken and getting a blow job at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> He turned to Miles. He was aware of uh, Miles being ill at ease with that scenario. And he's like, Miles, are you uncomfortable with this situation? And he's like, yes, bird, I am. And he's he, he's like, well, then I suggest you stick, you stick your head out the window. So that's what he did the duration of the ride. <laughs> it has nothing to do with what we were talking about, but I felt that. Uh, that reminds me of the Chuck Berry story, which I'm sure you probably uh, you probably heard as well. He's, he's eating the sandwich and, and getting a blowjob. And the, uh, the stagehand comes in and says, oh, you, you're you're on, Mr. Barry. And he says, God damn it, let me finish my sandwich. <laughs> <laughs>
back to your point, but you know, not only were they they were rejected by the status quo, there there's that whole part in my movie, Rashid's talking about sitting in with the Max Roach band, reaches to play a symbol and Clifford Jordan has removed the symbol and told him, I'm tired of listening to that fucking shit. <laughs> uh, he was like, how dare you? You know, but that's the thing. They were put down by the status quo. The promoters wouldn't give them gigs. The critics either ignored them or derided them. They weren't particularly popularly embraced. I mean, this music really didn't enjoy the kind of success. It, I don't know if success is the right word, but the popularity that it has today, a lot of those records are considered legendary. You know, yeah. people, could, they, you know, like all the ESP stuff, Bernard Stolman couldn't give them away back in the days. And then they started to experience a bit of a renaissance in the 70s. You know, Art Ensemble Chicago and Arthur Blythe and Anthony Braxton were all on major labels. And then there was all these new Turks arrived on the scene. I call it a conspiracy revisionist, you know, with Wynton Marsalis and his brother. And, and they started deriding the musical contributions the avant-garde. In fact, they've done their utmost to simply write that music out of history altogether. I'm surprised that you made both Marsalis brothers. I mean, I know that Winton never liked it and his music is more in the trad vein and he was probably partly responsible for the Ken Burns documentary pretty much admitting uh, yeah. that. But I, I always sort of thought that Branford, because I know he put out an album called Trio GP, which yeah. sort of sounds like it's influenced by free jazz. He specifically went after Cecil. You can Google it. Wow. It's, it he was even harsher than Winton. Why do you think that people, took some of the sort of more traditional players reacted so strongly to it that they felt the need to not just even ignore it but completely put it down and go out of their way to be down on it because I don't know the avant-garde broke every aesthetic rule you know I mean there was no uh, tenant that they didn't defy really you know and so their father Ellis he drilled into them his, you know very specific code of what jazz should be and it was the antithesis of what the avant-garde guys were doing so I don't really know it's like when punk came out and there were, people were saying oh it's just noise you know and it's like well for the uninitiated it is a beautiful noise nevertheless you know free jazz has always been derided on i don't know what it is it seems to really uh rub people the wrong way. It's funny because there's a little chain in New York. It got taken over by a national outlet in the later years. But when I grew up, there's Sam Goodies down the street. And there was this elderly Japanese guy who had been involved in some production. I forget his name. My friend Fred Cohn at the Jazz Record Center could tell me it next, <laughs> next time we, we converse. But uh, here's another point. I've been asked a lot in the course of these interviews, when did you get into free jazz? And I've always emphasized, I never got into free jazz. I just got into jazz. For me, it's all one thing, you know, it's it, everything relates to everything in it. As I said, it's a continuum. You know, I would buy these Coltrane records and they'd say on the back of the line, and though some people consider this anti-jazz and I'm like, anti-jazz? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's in the jazz section, you know, but anyway, I didn't understand the antipathy between camps. So I would ask this guy, you know, how's this Sonny Rollins record? And he's like, very good, very good. And then I would say like, how's this Miriam Brown's Geechee Recollections? And he would always have this patented answer you go that is noise you like noise you buy that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
that you bought with the noisy ones. <laughs> I didn't have enough time to get through this, but I did start reading an English translation of a French book called Fire Jazz Black Power that was written by a pair of mm. French critics. Have you seen this book? No, no, no. Uh, the foundation on which the book was based is that free jazz is like the musical reaction to white appropriation of previous jazz styles, the soundtrack to the Black Power movement. And in fire music, the closest that you get to being overtly political is the footage of Archie Shep saying that jazz culture and artist livelihoods won't improve until black livelihoods improve. Right. But also we talk about, Bobby talks about how Ornette went on strike because he was protesting the fact that white musicians were getting paid more than, you know, Definite theme I wanted to explore in my initial blueprint for the movie, where it was sort of the soundtrack to the black nationalist movement, the civil rights movement. Of course, it was also fueled by the anti-Vietnam thing that was happening here. But honestly, you're under some pressure during the documentary. It has to be 90 minutes long. I think I came in at 88 minutes, you know, and um, I just can't imagine not having everything in the movie that is there. So I would I would have to take something out to devote too much time. And then I realized, like, I think people are pretty cognizant of the fact that the 60s was a socially turbulent time. I don't think I need, needed to, to drill that point home too thoroughly. But again, all that is true. I mean, there's a there's a classic interview with John Cole. Train with Frank Kofsky, who was a white Jewish writer, but who was very much a uh, radical provocateur. And he keeps asking Train, like, so man, you know, now that you've gone in this avant-garde direction, is it, aren't you really, you know, giving voice to black rage? And Train just keeps saying, it's all about love, man. It's all about peace, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and yet the music sounds very angry, but perhaps that's a transmission of the complexity that is the human condition is you can be all about love, extreme suggestion each other and sound very angry in the process. Ascension fits into that. Certainly even, I guess, the one that every jazz or non, even a lot of non-jazz fans know, I love Supreme. Which is not that out. That's still pretty accessible compared to Ascension. It's very accessible, but it's a long way from my favorite things as well. Yeah. So it is all part, as you say, of a progression. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to make the point that even though, yes, this was very much an offspring of Black Rage, you know, there's a lot of pivotal white players who were very involved very early on. The Canadian uh-huh. Paul Blay and Carl Blay from Oakland. They were married, by the way. There's always some confusion as to their relationship. And I've seen them listed as brother and sister. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And Barry Alchil, who's actually from the Bronx, South Bronx, a primarily black neighborhood. So uh, Charlie Hayden. Charlie Hayden. That's right. So I don't like to think of it in terms of racial divisions. And also, you know, on a related point I wanted to get to that I didn't really explore in the movie that I, I was contemplating. But, you know, when I talk about how all these musicians are on third street between second and third you know music is not created in a vacuum that was three blocks north of the Fillmore east you know this is in the east village was a real center of radicalism in general not only did you have all the hippies and the you know abby hoffman
Hoffman lived five blocks north on St. Mark's Place between Second and Third Avenue. You also had all the all you know. Allen Ginsberg lived on 12th Street. So all the avant-garde film personal cinema guys like Jonas Mikas and Jack Smith were all. They, everyone's in in a, a close physical relationship to each other, and I think all that stuff was impacting the music. As a matter of fact, on Third Street, the Hell's Angels were there till recently. So you know, you can get much more outlaw than that. Yeah, there's a lot of radicalism in the air. And the other point I was making, I wanted to make, is that, you know, when we think of uh, psychedelic music and hallucinogenic exploration, we think of hippies. But I actually discovered in the course of making the movie, it didn't make the cut, is that, that all the all the free jazz guys were tripping their asses off as well. So <laughs> that, that was very much impacting the music. Again, I, I hearken back to my first interview with John Chikai. I was somewhat taken aback. I said, John, you know, John is Danish Congolese. I said, John, you know, you used to like don war paint and perform in the nude. I was like, what was that about? And he was like, I had to give voice to the psychedelic revelations I was experiencing through my use of LSD and mescal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's all making sense. But it sounds like uh, there was, uh, you know, obviously other stuff you would have liked to have covered. It took you a while to put the film together. You were working on it for quite a while, weren't you? Is there a lot of footage that didn't go into the film? Well, I mean, I shot hundreds of hours of, I mean, sure. every, every, I shot 32 interviews. Yeah, 16 of my interview subjects died in the course of the making of the movie. So it lends the project a certain degree of gravitas. So every one of those interviews is probably like two hours long. So yeah, I have a, a wealth of material that didn't make the final cut. You know, other than the two things that I just mentioned in, in that I didn't really explore the political landscape of the time, the tenor of, of the times that music was being played in, and the psychedelic thing. You know, all those little chapter heads you see, that was our blueprint. That was my script pretty okay. much, you know, and I really did cover everything that I wanted to. Were there artists you would have liked to have uh, interviewed, but it just it, you weren't able to work it out? It just didn't happen? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of artists that either refused to or asked for prohibitive, you know, I didn't pay anybody. They asked for prohibitive amounts of money. And I would be ambivalent about paying people. I mean, I talked to a, a legendary figure like Prince Lachey or Carla Blay and not pay them and then turn around and pay someone else. You know, I have no money. I mean, I made this movie. Uh, people laugh. I made this movie for like $20. We're in the digital era now. You know, I just used my best friend's uh, camera and lighting setup and the shooting part, that doesn't cost much. Paying for all the rights to everything and, get, and having a full-time editor toil on it for five months. I mean, you know, the budget got up to probably close to $200,000, you know, and that's why it's taken so long to reach fruition because I had to raise all that money. And all these people were far flung. No one, almost no one lived in New York. Fortunately, I'm in New York. You know, I don't I don't live in Kansas, you know, and everyone passes through at one stage or another while on tour. So that's also why the film took forever to put together. But sure, I mean, I'm not going to uh, single out people. I mean, I would love to have people who are also no longer with us, you know. Sure, of course, yeah. How did you go with archival footage, Tom? Did people sort of come up to you and say, hey, I've got this little uh, uh, 16 millimeter film in my attic. It might be. No, no, my editor and I just basically uh, scoured the internet and there's a dearth of footage. I mean, you know, there's no existing filmed interview with John Coltrane, one of the most iconic figures of the 20th century. That's incredible, isn't it? Jeez. In fact, the only footage of him with Rashid Ali and Alice Coltrane doesn't even have sound. I use a little excerpt from it at the end of the movie. So I've said this in a previous interview. Amazing what we were able to uncover, but, you know, equally 
disappointing as, as to how little there actually is available. You know, stuff just materialized, you know, in the course of making the movie. I like, uh, you use a lot of kind of abstract images and uh, yeah. animations throughout the film, I guess, to yeah. sort of mirror the music. I think that works really well. And was that a choice it. you made already because of the, the sort of lack of footage you and know, things? I can't pay uh, homage enough to my uh, editor, uh, John Northrup. He, he introduced a lot of those elements. I think I came in with maybe like a Hans Richter movie. He just went with it. You know, he was like, oh, I got you, you know, and, and he had a little background in the music. I brought in a lot of books for him to read. He was great at in introducing a, a visual way of transmitting the information. And also he, he really synthesized what it was I was trying to say. And, we, you know, sometimes he would go off on tangents and, you know, I'd have to reel him in. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the film was really a, a, a consequence of primarily a, tri- a artistic triumvirate of Lynn Coberts and the composer John Northrup and myself and also later on with our researcher who was really more responsible for licensing uh, Scott Crary but who did a, a, you know a, a Herculean job I sound like I'm accepting an award but generate some conversation about a couple of particular important movements that you explain in the film. So if you could just sort of talk a little bit about AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, who they were and what they offered their members. And did civil rights issues, political issues ever become part of their credo? Or was it purely just about, no, we're here to serve the musicians, get work? No, I mean, they they were very political. I talk about in New York where there was a formation of the Jazz Composers Guild, and it was almost a to sort of unionize the avant-garde. And it just sort of failed after six months for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, Roswell Rudd points out that, I think the quote is, it was a lot of collection of colorful characters, almost too colorful, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas the AACM formed in, in the early 60s and is still going strong today. So that is sort of symbolic of a certain, I don't know, mid Midwestern tendency. They really band together, as Anthony Braxton says in voiceover, narrative that they had no money all they had was poverty and you know a kind of determination to help each other and to help get the music heard they were um, very organized and it was of note to me is that uh, how much oliver lake and his cohorts in the black artist group were impacted by the chicago model he said that when he went to chicago he was so impressed with the fact that they were organized and had their own performance center and put on concerts and he said in st Louis, they were just kind of like jamming in the park, you know. <laughs> he went back to uh, St. Louis, and I, I make the point, or he makes a point in the course of the movie that initially he's like, Well, maybe we should be the uh, St. Louis division of the AACM. And they're like, No, man, we got to have our own thing. And they call mm-hmm. themselves the Black Artist Group. So, you know, that collective mentality was very characteristic of those the collection of those musicians in the Midwest. I'm not saying in New York it was competitive. I don't I, I think uh Bill Dixon makes the point that it wasn't competitive. They were all friends, you know, it was all a, a big network. Also the, you have to re- remember that those guys had a, a, a lot of shared history, especially in Chicago. They all went to the same school. Uh sorry, I'm it's failing. I, I, I can't remember what junior college they all attended. They all had the same pedagogue and that was the guy who really 
kind of turned them on to the whole like new music thing. You know, some of the composers I was citing earlier, like Ionis Zanakis and Luciano Berrio and Messian and those people. Whereas in New York, as I said earlier, it was the coming together of people from, you know, disparate backgrounds and, and locales. So maybe the fact that it was more homegrown in Chicago lent itself to a kind of tendency toward unification. The other thing that I wanted to ask about, and you've already gone and touched a little bit on this in, in our chat, is about the loft movement. So could you just yeah. explain a little bit about who Sam Rivers was and the whole concept of starting shows in homes and in, in lofts? Well, I used to go to Sam Rivers Jazz Loft, the Studio Rivby. I was quite young at the time. Not that young, but <laughs> I was a teenager. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it was all ages, but uh, probably was because his kids took the money at the door. So, you know, that was a great time in New York. It was, again, a consequence of what we were talking about earlier. They couldn't get gigs. So they just decided, well, if nobody's going to let us present the music, we'll just present it in our own, own homes. That grew out of the October Revolution, which I expound on the movie, uh, which was really a byproduct of the Jazz Composers Guild, where they put on a series of concerts, really publicized it at the Cellar Club club on the Upper West Side and for the first time started getting media focus and it made a real difference in terms of music kind of ascending and enjoying a little more success. And then the critics really picked up on the loft scene. And I can just tell you as an audience member, I enjoyed going, listen, I like going to the Village Vanguard. I mean, it was to be in this place where John Coltrane recorded live at the Village Vanguard, volume one and two, you know, and I used to go to the Village Gate, you know, where so many seminal people played and they were inviting but it was a little it was a little rigid because in New York before they carted you and you know and in fact they used to pressure you to have like two drinks and you know you sat at a table as accepting as the as the jazz aficionados were there was something a little more uh, how, how do I put it? There's something about going to a home and sitting there where everyone is just enraptured. And it's not about alcohol and smoking and the tinkling of glasses. As Thurman says, it was art music. The audiences were worshipful. It intrigued people for whatever reason. And again, it, it was in an era in New York. That was, one, that was another thing that I didn't get to uh, that I did ask everybody about in the movie. And I sort of touch on it a little bit in the chapter entitled When Life Was cheap and the music was free, but rents were very cheap. So you could uh, devote yourself to arcane practices like free jazz and not have to worry about paying rent and you know generating too much of an income. So these jazz lofts, as Warren Smith says, who who ran the studio Wiz, you know, no one was paying more than a few hundred dollars for these rather enormous spaces in these neighborhoods that, that, that were completely undesirable at, at that stage in time. Of course, now they're all like yuppie enclaves. I mean, that that's the irony, you know, that Warren expounds on is that us bohemians go into some unwanted, godforsaken neighborhood and sort of like create a scene and it becomes attractive to other people and then the gentrifiers take over. But that's a point that you sort of make in the film is that after a period of time that became attractive and then the rents went up and there goes the whole jazz loft scene. But how, how long was that? Uh, well, let's see. I'll take Studio Ribby because as an example, for me, Studio Ruby was the kind of main venue for that whole thing. It was a lot bigger than most of those spaces. I didn't go to all of them. I was just going going away to school at that stage. So uh, we would come in periodically to see shows. But um, Studio Ruby started in 1969. And I think went out of business in about 77. So I guess punk uh, killed it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
I think it's uh, there's a real lack of recorded documents of the loft scene, isn't there? As far as I know, there's that series of LPs. Uh, I can't remember what they're called. I've got a few oh, of them. Wildflowers. On Wildflowers. That's, that's great. It, it's yeah. like a four-volume set, of exclusively music recorded at Studio Rigby. Yeah, amazing as well. It's just it, yeah. it seems that there's probably a lot of stuff that happened there that, that wasn't recorded, unfortunately. So oh yeah, but I mean, isn't that the case? That's the case of all music. Going back to the distinction between clubs and lofts. I mean, the other thing is, of course, you couldn't even see these guys at clubs. So just to return to the point I initially made, you know, so it's not like there, you had a lot of alternatives. Oh, but you asked me a little about Sam Rivers, and Sam Rivers is an interesting figure because you know some people say that Sam was really at the forefront of this music in the early 60s. You know, he comes from New England and a, a lot of people think that Train was influenced by him, the whole sort of streaming sound that Train later adapted. You know, Sam Rivers in, enjoyed a certain amount of success early on. He recorded for the Blue Knight label and actually was in the Miles Davis band at some point, but really was always a champion of this music. And he was a little older, so he was a kind of mentor for a lot of people. And Studio Ribby was very inviting. You know, he really uh, featured a lot, uh, for instance, you know what I was talking about earlier, really featured all the George Lewis and Braxton and Art Ensemble, all these people from Chicago and, and Oliver Lake. There was no territorial or vibe to it all. As, as Barry Alter says, he presented whatever music he thought was worth presenting. There was no criterion beyond that. It's just amazing, though, to me that so many of these guys just sort of had this concept at the same time and, and how it manifested itself in so many multifarious ways. You know, like a lot of a lot of artistic movements in general. You know, there's a lot of cinematic equivalents. You know, 1959, you had, you know, Godard and Truffaut and Rivette all making the you know, their first movies, you know, so it was just, you know, this explosion of innovation, something I tried to transmit in the movie. So one other thing that you make note of in the movie by the end of the film is that whatever uh, momentum there was behind the free jazz movement, it sort of ended once we get to the 80s and the predominant form of jazz that people went to beyond that and still today are bebop fashion styles because that seems safer, more melodic. Yeah. But is there currently today in New York or anywhere else within the US something what you could call an avant-garde jazz movement? I mean, it's just that Stanley Crouch and the Marsalis have done everything to uh, disparage the music, but it's I, I don't want people to get the impression that it just ended because, yes, you know, my friends at Arts for Art to put on the Vision Festival every year. I mean, the Vision Festival is you know, an international uh, festival 
festival and people come from all over the globe to attend. And in Canada, they have the uh, actual festival in Victoriaville in New York. At least there's an avant-garde jazz performance probably every day of the week. There's a whole new uh, younger generation who are playing this music, who are very much inspired by the people I made the movie about. I mean, people are obsessed. They keep asking me about the new generation. I keep saying, well, listen, the original architects of this movement are still going strong. You know, to me, Evan Parker and Bullitt and Barry Guy and, and Carla Blay are still playing better than anybody. And you should go out and check them out while they're still with us. And those other guys can wait another 50 years for someone to make a movie. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think there is a fairly healthy free jazz, I guess is maybe an underground, you could say again, but you know, you just got to look through uh, an issue of the Wire magazine or a similar periodical. There is amazing stuff being recorded and, and out there, um, and particularly in the digital age with, with Bandcamp and streaming and stuff. It's a real free for all. You just have to dig, don't you? There's, there's always good stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this music has always been underground. You know, it's not sure. like, I mean, I, I, I was like, yes, a few artists got signed to major labels in the 70s but it's not exactly like people weren't breaking down doors to see this stuff you know but there lies a distinction some guys came out of the punk scene you know like Talking Heads and Debbie Harry and obviously more celebrated than any of their <laughs> counterparts on the avant-garde jazz scene would ever be but it's always been underground and I think it's enjoying maybe more popularity than it ever has maybe with the advent of the internet I know I'm aware that a lot of young people are much more versed in this music but but at the same time, it's somewhat daunting a lot. You know, I uh, as a drummer, I'll go to these drum stores. My friend Jackson Crawl used to play with Cecil Taylor. He's a drum maker as well, and he does a lot of percussion stuff. And he would sell stuff to the local drum stores, which now have all gone out of business. You know, again, that's the negative side of the internet. And we used to encounter these guys who come out of these jazz studies programs, and they're not even aware of the existence of this music. You know, and these, these are guys who have degrees in jazz. The Marcellus brothers and their cronies really have have done a, a consummate job of eliminating this music from the human consciousness. I mean, in New York, we have a jazz at Lincoln Center, which Wynton Marsalis, I, I'm going after Wynton Marsalis specifically, but he is the most celebrated jazz figure of this era. It's basically the house that Wynton built. He's the curator of, of jazz at Lincoln Center. And, you know, Lincoln Center is, is the, uh, a citadel of culture, probably the most celebrated venue in, in the, the city of New York. He puts on almost no avant-garde jazz. And when criticized for that, he defensively always states, he's like, well, I put on Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor. But, you know, that's like Rolling Stones and the Beatles. You know, that's like yeah. Biggie and Tupac, you know. <laughs> that hardly uh, constitutes, you know, a healthy outlet for this music. So there's definitely a conspiracy afoot to, to eliminate this music from people's, from, from the jazz lexicon altogether. So how has the film been received, Tom? Well... <laughs> I mean, we got a lot of critical attention. Not the best era to be releasing a movie in, a, in, in the course of a pandemic. In New York, we were, uh, well, we got uh, highly lauded by the New York Times critics pick. And unfortunately, that's kind of like the most important, well, not unfortunate for me, but <laughs> that's the kind of, you know, what you, you hope for. And uh, it got, it played a month in New York and went, you know, it got held over uh, three extra weeks, which is Fantastic. impressive. And uh, it's, you know, starting to play around the rest of the country and it's uh, well in Austin. I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but you know, we have to work out all the legalities for an international release. And then we're just starting to field offers for a streaming service. The laws regarding licensing are draconian. Uh, yes. 
to make a documentary, you have to clear every millimeter of film. And it literally took us nonstop for two years just to work out the American rights. And now it's a whole other scenario going overseas. And each country has their own specific set of rules and laws and bylaws and you know so but to answer your question it's doing well jay hoberman who's a celebrated he he wrote for the village voice for many years gave us put us in well i'm a little ambivalent about it he he gave us a so far he put us in his top 10 list in both art form and uh sight and sound while simultaneously referring to the movie as not not a great documentary so i don't know what? I don't know how to pick. <laughs> Mixed message there. We've garnered a lot. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too self-congratulatory, but we have garnered a lot of great, great press. And, you know, we're getting enthusiastic responses from everywhere that it's played, you know. So, and it's opening in San Francisco in a couple of days. And- Is 2022 the year that you do think it'll be on a streaming service? And dare I ask, will it be on physical media? Yeah, yeah, both, I, I suspect, yeah. You just reminded me, I'm friends with this guy, Dave Markey, who made a movie about Nirvana and... Sonic Youth touring together and, and it was it was called 1991 the year that punk broke you know mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's what I, th- I thought you were asking me is 2022 and free jazz is finally going to be preeminent <laughs> music <laughs> The kids will finally get it, yeah. Right. Tom, uh, have you got anything else uh, in the pipeline? I assume this has obviously taken up a lot of your time and still working on various things, obviously, but have you got any musical projects or film projects or or anything coming up? My next film, I've written a script and I, yeah, I'd like to, uh, it's a narrative film. Wow. I don't want to talk too much about it. And uh, musical, uh, well, of course, again, the pandemic is sort of. uh, Sure. I have a duo album. I have no idea when it's going to be released with Mike Watt of Minutemen. The oh, Minute yes. Album. So yeah. We recorded it some time ago. And I think, you know, Mike, you know, because he was, uh, because of the pandemic, was forced to not tour. And he's, you know, usually eternal on tour. So I think he, like, revisited the archives and realized that we never did anything with this session we recorded in Los Angeles a few years ago. So we edited it. I think there's a, there's actually a single out, but I think it's already sold out. But so theoretically, that would be the next. But I, I, Mike moves in mysterious ways. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, no. Tom, thank you so much. This has been an absolute treat really wonderful conversation oh right i have to say that one thing uh, i mean i've taken away a lot of things from the film but one thing that the film has convinced me to do is to really investigate more into the music of carla blay a name that i've known for years but for one reason or another didn't go into her music and now i've been listening to since watching her music and i'm kicking myself absolutely wonderful performer uh wonderful composer thank you very much for that uh, as well as uh everything else from your film. Carla was a fascinating figure. If you really uh, get into her life story, she was kind of a wild child from Oakland. Apparently her father was a minister and then her mother died and he was just, he completely rejected religion and she moved to New York when she was 19 years old. Yeah. And she got a job. She just had like a homemade dress that she sort of cobbled together. As you see, and of course the movie she moved here and just, you know, slept on a bench in Grand Central. And uh, But she ultimately got employed by, uh, she was working as a cigarette girl at Birdland but she uh, lost the gig because people would be like, hey, baby, let me get
get a pack of uh, Newports and she'd be like, shut the fuck up. Thornliest Monk is trying to sell. <laughs> My respect has even gone up, right, up there, right, even higher. Right, right. Okay, so once again, thank you very, very much, Tom. And we wish you just much success with uh, oh, all, all forms of yeah, uh, the film being seen. All right, Bernie and I will be back in a moment to talk about what's going to be happening on episode 93 of See Here coming out in January 2022. You're listening to See Here. Huge thanks to Tom for his very generous time and really fascinating conversation. And also our thanks to Lynn Culbertson, who uh, arranged that interview. And she also wrote the incidental music for the film. So thanks so much to you both. I got a lot out of that interview. I know you did too, Bernie. That was right up my alley, Morris. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, a real sweet guy, Tom. That was uh, perfect. Mm, it was. So let's talk briefly about what we're going to be doing next month on C here. Tim will be back. So we've gone from a month where we're talking heavy metal. We've gone to this month where we're talking about free jazz. And next month, we're going to be talking about country music. In particular, two wonderful practitioners of the outlaw country style. So the the film that we have for next month is called Without Getting Killed or Caught. It's directed by a filmmaker and author called Tamara Saviano. It's a documentary about Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and their friendship. It also brings into the mix Guy Clark's wife, Susanna Clark, who I believe was known to have said that she loved her husband Guy, but Towns was her soulmate. So this will be a really fascinating documentary. Looking forward to talking to Tamara about that. So that will be our film for next month without getting killed or caught. How can you get in contact with us? Uh, We have the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast what else can i tell you uh you can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com and the instagram bernie uh at see here podcast that's pretty much all we've got for this month it's the end of the year i'm hoping to get this out before the reindeer shit hits the roof hope you've enjoyed the episode hope you've enjoyed listening to the show all through this year thanks very much to any of you listeners who've given us your time we really really appreciate it anyone who got in contact with us through the Facebook group and posted their suggestions for other films or their thoughts on other films. We're really, really grateful and huge thank you to uh, anyone who joined us on the show this year. It was always wonderful having guests and uh, getting other perspectives. And next year is going to be a very, very special year for us because we hit the 100 episode mark. That should be in August, all going well. 
So we're still trying to work out what it is that we're going to do for that 100th episode. If you have any ideas, send us an email, post something in the group, but we'll try to make it something very, very special for your ear holes. But that won't be till August anyway. So we'll have lots of wonderful shows hopefully before then. So um, all I can say is have a wonderful Christmas, have a wonderful New Year, get vaccinated, look after yourselves and just be nice to people. Do someone a solid. Do someone a solid for Tim's birthday. He'd want that. All the best to you. Be well. Cheers. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.